Hello everyone, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's an exciting 00 Origins episode, a long time in the making and in the planning this one. We're delighted that you've joined us today for this little adventure as we take a look with our guide, Jeffrey Chapman, through the ins and outs of Operation Mincemeat and the Allied Invasion of Sicily, Ian Fleming's affiliation and involvement with the Naval Intelligence, and of course, at the end, we will give a little review of Operation Mincemeat, the film recently released by director John Madden. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my intrepid co-hosts across the pond in Canada, Jeffrey Chapman, our guide for today's historical adventure, and Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor, Gentlemen, it is an absolute pleasure to see you. It's been about a month since last we recorded. And yeah, I'm really gunning for this one. Yeah. I like what you did there with the introduction, though. I just got to say, you said intrepid, and that was a nice little uh, William Stevenson. uh, See, I know my Stevenson. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, sir. Very good. I know my Stevenson. Yeah. Uh, this Double O Origins episode is a really special one. I'm excited about it. We got some awesome history we're going to talk about. Uh, Jeff, you want Love to it. preview what's you want to preview what's coming up in the next little while for our yeah. listeners? So, um, just uh, we we noticed that there was going to be a, a film coming out about Operation Mincemeat, and um, obviously there are some. Uh, uh, you know, connections between uh, the Bond universe, obviously uh, Ian Fleming being a part of uh, the planning in uh, different aspects of Operation Mincemeat. So we thought, you know, that would be sort of a good sort of tie-in in relation to uh, Bond by Numbers episode. And we're going to go over um, the what actually happened in relation to the planning and uh, how the planning of Operation Mincemeat uh ultimately assisted with the uh, successful invasion of uh, Sicily, creating a second front um, with Operation Husky and so forth. And then also we're going to then review uh, the film. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Before we do that, though, um, shall we talk a little about the world of Bond and any developments since last we met? Well, the big development uh, in the world of Bond, I have to say, would be the passing of Monty Norman, as we all know, who was the original composer of the James Bond theme that John Barry brought to life with his big band orchestra. So, you know, just for a few notes from uh, House for Mr. Biswas, uh, I was born under a bad sign, uh, equals the James Bond theme. Although I didn't really read mm-hmm. it in a melodic kind of way, but I was born <laughs> under a bad sign. There you go. Uh, <laughs> led to the establishment of the iconic James Bond theme. It's yeah. kind of fitting that I was born under a bad sign that Monty Norman would pick that for James Bond because he is kind of born under a bad sign if you think about yeah. it. <laughs> Especially if you see No Time to Die. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. A little, a little bit too soon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, going back into that, um, yeah, Monty Monty Norman. I mean, I'm only really familiar with his with his. I'm not familiar yeah. with like the stage works that he composed. I'm only familiar with his the original James Bond theme. It's iconic to me. You know, it's this it's the sound of my childhood and onwards. So you know, like that legacy to me is enough. Uh, Barry, you know, took over as the main composer of the series. So his music stands out as being the James Bond music, but Monty Norman is the one that planted a seed and let it grow, so to speak. And Barry, you know, did the, he did the trimming, he did the watering, he uh, made sure the fertilizer, the soil was strong uh, in order to, you know, give us the Bond soundscape we have nowadays. Mm-hmm. 
So well, he, he was he penned he penned quite a few musicals in his time and was yes. obviously very involved musically in career as a producer, as a writer, composing songs for like Cliff Richard, Bob Hope. I think he did a lot of that sort of stuff. You know, he was a Broadway uh, award winner or what do you call them? Tony, sorry, Tony Award winners for uh, work on Broadway. You know, he um, he did he did all sorts of stuff like you're saying, Josh. Uh, he was a really interesting uh, interesting figure. Yeah. Yes, he definitely was. So R.I.P. Monty Norman, uh, you had a great run. And uh, I, as I said, I'm not familiar with your stage musicals, but I know your Bond theme. Jeff knows <laughs> yeah. your Bond theme. Scott knows your Bond theme. Scott might know a little bit more about his musical background more than we do. But still, uh, that is a passing of a titan for sure. And yeah, uh, we've got we've got some news on the Bond front in terms of Bond 26, don't we? Uh, not going to be released until at least another four or five years. Barbara Broccoli has suggested as much in a recent interview. And she's also quite determined to keep it as a single issue film. Yeah, going more of an episodic nature, maybe of sort of that the more films were kind of putting on a little I'm bit. Because okay even well, though it's going to really at, recreate yeah. it. Yeah, but it, but it seems to me that they're not going to have like an ongoing thread, sort of like a, a Spectre mm-hmm. sweep that Fleming had. They might just simply do, um, I don't know, maybe they will have continuity, but I, but this seems like they're going to go for individual episodes and they don't want to confuse uh, newcomers to the genre with, you know, with films like Spectre and No Time to Die with having this established storyline so far. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll because, see what we'll out of that. Because remember when we were talking about Skyfall, and Skyfall was considered to be kind of a standalone outside of of Miss Casino Royale and Quantum. It was almost a soft reboot that they that they just used for like the fiftieth anniversary, and then that's why they put the Aston Martin in there and things that didn't quite make sense. You know, just kind of there was almost like a nostalgia yeah, bait slash fan like service, yeah. kind of like a Spider Man uh, No Way Home kind of scenario where they brought in elements from like other yeah. from the older films and and put it in there, that kind of fan service. But then they decided with Spectre to tie Skyfall to Spectre as well. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll talk about the gold nuggets as they're unearthed. Let's, uh, yeah. let's Who will be the next Bond? Who, where, yeah. what, will, mm-hmm. what, what, what kind of Bond aesthetic are they going for this time? Will it be more of a Brosnan, more sort of idea, something like towards Matthew Vaughn's The Kingsman? Are they going to go in that kind of direction? Or are they going to go to like period era bond or something like that? You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, guys, I've got I've got a little bit change. of news on, on the um, on the personal front. Got a little bit of bond news. Yeah, okay. I was saying to Jeff off air that um, I've planned a little holiday to London when when I get an October break, right? And I didn't realize it until after I had um, booked the tickets. I discovered that Q the Music have their last ever concert in uh, London in October, and I've got tickets to see Warren and his uh, you know, 13-piece orchestra. And the evening is being compared by uh, Caroline Bliss, um, by Madeline Smith, and Caroline Monroe, Naomi. Ooh, Josh, one of your nice, favorites. Nice, one nice. of your favorites, yeah. So these three ladies are going to sort of compare the evening and... You know, as they have done, you can check out Q the Music stuff on Such a online, handsome craft. Such lovely lines. It, it's going to be good <laughs> to. Uh, it's going to be good to see that one in concert. Yep. So I'm excited about that. Well, make sure when you're and, driving uh, home, you yeah. see a helicopter following you on the way back. When you're driving home, look out for mm-hmm. the helicopter. 
I'll you know, fine, always, so I won't have that always, concern. But mm-hmm. well, if, if look out your porthole, whatever they call it, what do they call a, a, a viewport? Uh, well, what would you call a window, that on a, on a plane? On a plane? <laughs> I guess yeah. it's a window. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a window. <laughs> it's not a porthole anyway. That's more more like a, on a yeah. ship, right? So <laughs> yes, but uh, my nautical terminology is uh, okay. terrible. Jeff will hopefully put some good <laughs> nautical terminology when he talks about naval intelligence in the uh, podcast. <laughs> and speaking of naval intelligence, why don't we transition now over to what people have actually downloaded this episode for, not to, uh, and what they've actually, and what they've actually come here for, which is not to listen to us brat on about absolute tripe, but instead to talk about our heavily researched subject, Operation Mincemeat, Ian Fleming, and all the exciting in. And yeah, absolutely. Never underestimate something. Well, I was going to say tripe or trout because uh, you know we can talk about trout. It's actually very, uh, to be honest, trout. Uh, for fishing for uh, a segue, I think we found one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, here we go. Double O Chapman, over to you, my man. Thank you. So, we're going to be talking about Operation Mincemeat, basically the ramifications of the operation, uh, how it used all the different branches of service, um, and it was a multinational uh, you know, operation as well, obviously, because it was Allied Forces, um, and going forward, how they used that for different operations for the rest of the war and even post-war, like just sort of, it, it was, uh, it set a precedent. But if we want to set the stage, what's important, and one thing I, I want to mention is that um, uh, since we're recording this in, uh, you know, very late July, technically it's August, depending, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when, when in Japan, yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, recently the 79th anniversary of um, Operation Husky. Operation Husky um, was the invasion of of Sicily. And so that was uh, July tenth. Uh, it began on July tenth, nineteen forty-three. Now, um, and that was sort of the beginning of a second front that the Allies really needed, because really up until nineteen forty-two, uh, the German war machine was just you know cleaning up uh, in relation to the war effort. Like it was definitely dominated. The Nazis were were kicking major ass, and. Up, Especially after uh, that, exactly. Paul so France, right? they were really looking, and obviously, you know, with the Americans uh, joining the war effort um, after you know December seventh, and once they were finally had boots on the ground, and in fact, the first real major uh, operation with them joining in was Operation Torch, which uh, which Torch, is yeah. the you know invasion of North Africa, which. Um, was very very important and and a success, um, but and you'll see why this relates to Operation Mincemeat because in fact um, uh, there's a similar situation that made uh, the powers that be in the intelligence community realize that oh okay well we dodged a bullet there, uh, and so they actually use a similar situation of and this is how Mincemeat sort of came to fruition and actually how it became a success. So if I just, I'm just going to just sort of quickly uh, speak about Operation Torch. So 
That actually, the operation started on November 8th, 1942. And that was, again, um, a massive undertaking with um, the Allied Allied troops, American, British, uh, French. And uh, it was to, to make, again, like a, another sort of uh, foothold in a, within Europe and to finally have Allied troops be able to actually finally take some land instead of just sort of trying to fight and not actually have any kind of a, mm-hmm. a front. Uh, and ironically enough, uh, can I oh, ask you a bit about operation sure. torch? Just, I, I know that you're, no, no. you know, you're just using this to set up yeah, Incemeet, but did that involve the battle of El Alamein yeah. in yeah, South Africa? Yeah, was that? Okay. Right. So uh, that was, and that was, was it, was that how connected was that to the oil? I believe the both the Germans and the allies were rushing for the Suez canal. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because the Germans mm-hmm. had co- some control of, of the Suez Canal because the Italians occupied Ethiopia, that's right? right? That's right. The, yeah. yeah. And, the, uh, and the, well, the Italians had, the, uh, I believe the, 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 Ita- yeah, the Italians had invaded yeah. Ethiopia as one of their, you know, how like those fascist countries like to cause a war and, and, and say like, this is, this mm-hmm. is for us. And then, yeah, they, I think they invaded them in 1935 or something like that. Ethiopia equals Ukraine basically. Yeah. Kind of. Just to like show that. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Right on. Uh, and so, and, and and obviously, if we're talking about uh, oil, if we're just going to say talk about that, is that um, oil and, and those kind of minerals are very important for a war machine. And so, it, when mm. uh, Germany and Italy had um, the oil in the Middle East, and they also had oil uh, like in Romania and that area, which um, was basically. Hitler's baby for all for a lot of the precious um, minerals and, and and metals and stuff like that. Um, the, he was he was just swimming swimming in it. So it was very important that if they were, if the Allies could take some of that away. Also, why he wanted Russia as well, exactly. not just to well, it, exactly of Bolshevism and um, but he also wanted the uh, resources of Russia for the Greater German Reich. And so. mentioning Operation Torch, it actually started on the eighth, but. Before that, there was a. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was uh, very lucky that um, <laughs> that the operation actually was a success because, um, in fact, um, ironically enough, there was um, a plane crash with um, some very key documents um, with a pilot, and uh, it actually got washed up on the Spanish shore. Sound familiar? And uh, and mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. I run. Oh, I mean, I, I I do have a quote, but um, uh, and it is from um, Ben McIntyre's uh, book Operation Mystery. But it does explain that the Allies were very very lucky that the Germans, even though they got that intel, they didn't act upon it. And this is this is actually uh, a big reason how and why Mincemeat actually worked as it was. <laughs> Um, so, uh, again, uh, there's, there's a, a few operations. So, I mean, we'll get into this later, but so operation torch, we're going through it's operation torch. And then again, it's related. You have operation mincemeat, which is actually a, a portion of another larger deception, um, operation called operation Barkley. And then there's also another one called operation animals. And, uh, it's just, it's just amazing. The, the the scale of deception and the resources that was used to try and deceive uh, Hitler and the 
the German war machine. Um, so I do have a, a, a little bit of a quote um, from uh, Ben McIntyre's Operation Mincemeat, just sort of explaining what happened here. So on September 25th, 1942, off the coast of Cadiz, a Royal Navy, uh, Royal Navy courier, James Haddon Turner, was carrying a letter dated September 21st, and it had information on the upcoming invasion in North Africa. In, um, the gentleman, Haddon Turner, washed up uh, on the shores of Cadiz, which was a hotbed for uh, German spies. The Basically, the Spanish, as everyone knew, was complicit with Germany, even though they're, they're, they were technically, they say that they were neutral, but everyone knows that. I mean, to be honest, every single aspect of the Spanish government and intelligence was, it was like Swiss cheese with <laughs> the Abwehr, which is the German uh, German intelligence. And uh, it's, and especially well, Frank Franco and the and the Spanish Civil exactly, War just before exactly. that. I mean, it's as fascist as it gets, exactly. right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. but neutral, neutral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. and in in fact, uh, one of Hitler's favorite um, units to use, and man, these guys. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> it was called the the Blue Division, and it was a all Spanish division of super tough. Spanish soldiers, and they all fought on the Russian front. Front, and uh, that was sort of Franco's uh, like gift to Hitler, and Hitler was uh, very impressed. And they were very, very tough because it was kind of like the equivalent of the Condor Legion that the Germans used in the Spanish Civil War. So, with this plane crash, with this uh, Royal Naval Courier, uh, and uh, with the documents that had washed up, uh, there was another. So there was more than obviously there was more than one person, and unfortunately there was another um, victim within the crash. It was a an SOE, a French SOE agent by the name of Louis Danlo. Uh, he and he had a bunch of wireless messages that were recovered and handed over to the Germans. Um, basically, um, and one of the quotes was: "All documents, including prominent personalities and possible information." With regard to our organizations, there together with a notebook had been photostatted and come into the hands of the enemy. Uh, and the Germans had no greater importance than any other bit of intelligence. Documents had likely been planted. Now that, I don't know, I got to say, the British dodged a bullet there. They really mm-hmm. dodged a bullet. We'll see. Definitely. And, uh, and so, I mean, that's an example of you know, and this is kind of unprecedented. Like, I mean, these kind of things have happened, but uh, it's just when they heard about that, uh, I mean, they were scrambling, being like, what do we do? What do we do? Because uh, September 21st, September 25th is not that far away from November. So you could imagine that the wheels are already turning for this invasion, and there is very little time to do any kind of adjustments or, or, or changing or anything like that. So. You know, it's like you already you already put nope. your card down. And you can't exactly take it up off the table and pick another one. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, you can't. Um, just to clarify, you can definitely tell the difference between pre uh, fall of France, yes. Dunkirk, or and Absolutely. afterwards, because you mentioned SOE. Now, just oh, I'm sorry, to yes, make sorry. sure I got this right. This is this this is the special operations executive, executive yes, right? Which is that sort of 
super team of allied agents, which 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 is essentially the Americans and the British and the French resistance working together. Basically, right? yeah. So, and they kind of had a a slogan. It was like "Set Europe ablaze." And basically, I think what they were it was almost it was almost like the military wing of the of MI six. And the whole point of it was because at this point was again there was the allies were basically working out of England because they didn't really have a front at this point. So what they had to do right. is they were taking all of these people that survived uh, and, and got out and were basically refugees or, 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 you know, working in exile in, in allied countries, which would more or less be England or, uh, um, and then basically they were setting them up, training them as commandos and doing all this kind of stuff and then sending them back. Right. And yeah. and so, and for example, like like the anthropoids, exactly, uh, exactly, where they trained the uh, Czech rebels exactly. to kill yep. Heydrich, and uh, and that's exactly it. And so, SOE again, they would usually try and train the people from the specific country that they're sending them in, because obviously they're a native speaker, they have more of an idea, the lay of the land, the politics, all that kind of stuff. And I mean, they had SOE agents for like basically every country in Europe and it was very, very well used and it was SOE was excellent at what they did. Yeah. So I guess the impression I'm trying to create here and that you're trying to create here too, is that even though after the fall of France and everything seemed to be in despair, the allies were already putting things together. They had the SOE. So they were working with other, with rebels within uh, Nazi occupied countries. On top of that, we also have their successful defense, England's successful defense of the Luftwaffe, because mm-hmm. uh, they, they managed to get through the Blitz before Operation mm-hmm. Mincemeat, right? That's correct. And the Americans were already in the war before Mincemeat as well. So things were moving, and the Germans were getting setbacks. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't utterly dire, no. but there still could be a chance that the Germans could get the advantage oh, again and press forward, right? So that's why Mincemeat had to happen. And it seems what you're telling us is that the operation you you spoke of about the plane crash occurring off the coast of Spain, this might have planted the seeds for what will become mincemeat down the road, right? Exactly, because, you know, the, exactly. um, the top brass uh, were just saying, like, we're really lucky that, you know, they just didn't act on the intelligence. And, and it was also, I think it also helped that it was Spain where it happened because it was, it was pretty impressive intelligence and they just decided not to act on it. And so, um, mm-hmm. and what I'm going to talk about now is why Chomley and, and, um, you know, the uh, 20 committee, um, thought, why don't we do it again? Because, you know, <laughs> but we have to do it in such a way that, you know, it's not going to be like, well, they can't do it twice. Well, yeah. What mm-hmm. is the 20? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So that was in relation to, um, operation torch. And, and so now uh, this is 1943. So with uh, with the second with that North Africa being a success in Ali Maine, they were thinking we need to have a second front because you know at this point we just need to find a way to keep going. And they thought, well, you know, if this worked once, we can probably <laughs> kind of try and do it again. What I'm going to read to you now is, is called the Trout Memo. And they say it was written by John Goffrey, who was director of the, the NID, which is Naval Intelligence Division. However, um, again, through reading the Operation Mincemeat, the book by 
uh, Ben McIntyre. Ben McIntyre seems to believe that the wording and the way it sounds, it's possible that it may have been his secretary slash assistant, Ian Fleming. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the Trump memo. I was wondering when we were going to get yeah. to him. Yeah, because yeah. he plays a part. He was in there somewhere coming there. out of the woodwork. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sure banging was. on his typewriter. Um, or banging in oh, general. Yes. Um, so it's funny. <laughs> now, just so, just, just so we have it clear, right? Godfrey, uh, Admiral Godfrey, was the equivalent uh, historically to what Fleming does with the character of Correct. Edward, right? He, he's the head of naval yes. intelligence. And I, there was, yeah, exactly. And uh, exactly, because that was kind of like his. Or at, at least as clear, clearly equitable yeah, no, as the fictional world correct. allows. Yeah. Uh, that's what it yeah. seems like. Um, and so I, I do have I do have a quote uh, in relation to what the Trout memo. And it's funny because it, it's kind of just like almost like an allegory because it's all just talking about fishing, but it's giving examples like of um, you know how you can catch a fish and being like basically like the Germans. <laughs> so I'm thinking of Schubert's The Trout. There now. you go. <laughs> Uh, and so, again, this is uh, the Trout Memo, and it was written in 1939. Um, the Trout Fisher casts patiently all day. He frequently changes his venues and lures. If, if he has frightened a fish, he may give the water a rest for half an hour, but his main endeavor, viz, to attract fish by something he sends out from his boat is incessant. He never stops, yeah. Exactly. So, and apparently there's 54 um, sort of detailed examples of how to catch the fish. And number 28 uh, was apparently, which is the one that, uh, it was inspired by Basil Thompson, who was, uh, he worked with um, Special Branch and um, MI5. And so one of his, it was based on a book which uh, it was actually mentioned in in the film uh, because apparently Fleming said he liked it and it was called uh, the Milner's Hat and basically it's about a corpse mm-hmm. dressed as an airman with dispatches uh, in his pockets that could be dropped on the coast supposedly from a parachute that had failed. Much like we can Bernie. <laughs> basically, yeah, uh, e- exactly. And this sort of was a little bit of a, a little light bulb, and they thought, well, okay. This could work. Now, again, this is before um, what we were mentioning uh, of the that uh, the downed airman, the uh, Turner. And mm-hmm. so that's a good almost four years. But, um, you know, it's showing that with this kind of an idea. And, again, that's kind of um, sort of out of brain thinking. Like, it could work, right? And this isn't the first time that kind of thing has happened, um, This this type of deception. But um, clearly, uh, there is no. merit. And Churchill himself makes quite a bit of uh, of this corkscrew yeah. thinking, doesn't he? And I, I know Corkscrew-ma. that those types of thinkers... Yeah, so, I mean, I'm getting the impression, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I'm getting the impression of just these thinkers, these people who, as you say, have either left uh, this context, that setting, whether it's uh, combat, whether it's intelligence, whether it's uh, administrative resourcing, whatever it is. You got these individuals from different different quarters, and I know you're going to get on and talk about that 
the 20 committee, but I just get this feeling of people throwing stuff on the wall and seeing what sticks. Like, what? How wild is this? This one? No, nah, we can't do that one. This one? Yeah, eh, we'll keep that one on the burner. This one? Let's go. All ducks in, you know? Like, it just seems, as you said, the word incessant, I think, is the one you, you use, was, right? Yeah. To, to describe that metaphor that was in the trout. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, and these kind of things, especially with espionage, it, you can't be a linear thinker. I mean, you can be, but dealing with people and situations, everything, it's always a, a fluid situation. You can't just expect, okay, well, look, so he, many he walks down the street and you know he, he picks up the paper at 7.45 from the newspaper stand, uh, and, he, and then he always buys a pack of gum. And you can't just bank on the fact he's going to do that every day at the same time. And so it's just those out of the, I mean, that's, I guess that's a bad example, but you just have, you cannot always, No, I get you, you have to you. always yeah. think out of the box. And that's why you have people like, I mean, especially like um, the individual um, Charles Chumley, even though it's spelled with, like, he has like what, 19 different extra letters in the spelling. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Um, but uh, he's one of those out of the box brain thinkers. And this is just a, another example of, people that work in espionage and intelligence right from day one. Like even if we go from, uh, you know, we we're talking about uh, Walsingham, but you have to have people that, that, that can think of, uh, of ideas to, you have to outfox the Fox and how are we going to do it? That's what Walsingham did, right? With uh, Mary Queen of Scots, he was able to get into her inner circle of the Catholic spies. And then he was able to have her destroy herself. Exactly. Right. It's like that line in the Godfather, never interrupt your, your enemy when they're about to make a mistake. Yeah, exactly. Right. That is exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Part two. Yeah. So when, when the down airman happened and there was all this, they were trying to think of, of an example because they were planning to have an invasion of Sicily and just to clarify oh, for our audiences, good. our listeners, so why was Sicily so important for the Allies to get? Like, why not mainland Italy? Why not uh, going in and going, trying to take France again? I, I mean, well, never mind the French question, because we've already established that France was lost. So therefore, you would assume that there is a big wall of uh, fortification that they have to go through to get to get France, obviously, right? Right. Uh, but why was Sicily so integral to uh, the Allied opening up the allies opening up a second front from what i saw and from what i remember is geographically it's very close to malta and also just um if you can get a foothold there and push up it will open up a lot of different doors uh and, and we can and it's a it's a it's a logical spot to sort of start a second front and the problem is is that it's so logical it's like everyone knows you're going to do it so that's why it was mm -hmm. so important yeah, everyone's going there mm -hmm. that it's like that's yeah. why it was so sure. difficult to be able to like how the hell can we convince the germans because they're not stupid like everyone like even <laughs> churchill said like you know everyone and their dog knows the best place to invade is sicily so how can we make it so then they think we're going to go somewhere else and it's true. It's very mm -hmm. hard to try and do a feint and do that, right? And it makes sense. Uh, yes. I, I mean, obviously, the strategical and, and tactical uh, relevance of Sicily makes a lot of sense, especially because Malta was just getting smoked uh, like every day. I think there was uh, – okay, I, I shouldn't quote this, but I remember reading somewhere that it was almost like every day for – like six or seven months, it was just getting bombed by the Litwafa. And uh, 
And mm-hmm. I mean, the reason I say that is because once, if you can get Sicily and then, and um, you can have that there, we they can have airfields and then they can take back uh, Malta, which was very important, especially because then you could have sort of free reign with the Mediterranean. That was the important part, right? Sort of like stepping well, stone, exactly, really. Sicily it's just like is a stepping stone, mm-hmm. or Malta is a stepping stone to to exactly. Italy, which we want to take out because Italy is one member of the exactly. Axis, right? So you want to take out Mussolini, you want to get him out, mm-hmm. so then Hitler has one less ally, and Italy would, would be the most vulnerable, vulnerable I would say, of, as, of the exactly Axis powers. Because well, geographically, it's geographically, vulnerable. It's a lot also, of coastline. Also, as it's an army, a lot of like, <laughs> I mean, they really were not like there were units that were tough, but overall, Italy was not known as like a really uh, tough adversary. Not since well, the Roman Empire, anyway. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but well, that's true. But also the, the the mainland of Italy, right? Like up until you reach the, the Alps. Up and that's Turin, where there's you know really Lombardy tough. and up Those that way. Tough, like, yeah, it's easy to get to that. It's easy to get north in Italy if you have, if you're marching essentially, or you're you know your tank division or yeah. something. You're you're not going over like crazy crazy geography. No, exactly. Yeah, and and the Germans can send their troops right through the Alps from right from Germany into the yeah. Alps right into northern Italy yeah. and fortify most of the country that that's way, right. right? So Mussolini always has Hitler able to back him up, right? Exactly. So. That's why he would send his best, the best of his best, to Italy to defend it. But so you can't go right into Italy yet. You got to take Sicily. That's the main point. Exactly. Exactly. But how do we trick the Germans that were not invading Sicily? Exactly. And so they had to think up a way to do that, and and and, and thus uh, mincemeat was concocted because they had remembered that situation of the downed airmen and. Um, they thought, well, you know, if it worked once, it can work again. And Fleming's exact role in that is is kind of a footnote now in history. Yeah. We know that he was in the room. We know that he suggested this and that, and he liked the story. But it it, it is it's un it's kind of unclear. It, it's unqualified to yeah. say, yeah, to say, oh, it was Fleming's it, idea. No, it wasn't Ian Fleming's idea. It was. it was an enormous. No, I don't think it was. I I know that obviously, yeah. I mean, especially because if Godfrey was there, he was he had a lot of sort of veto power here and there. So obviously, um, totally, obviously, yeah. you know, Fleming was there beside him, you know, ashing a cigarette and having a sip of whatever. Um, he probably, you know, he probably put in his two cents here and there, uh, but uh, I, I can't necessarily say that he was uh, he was. As important as either uh, Montague or Chumley would have been, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, once the wheels got moving, he definitely wasn't. Yeah, no, you know, exactly. regardless of whose brainchild it was, once the arms and legs grew in this operation, Fleming did take a back seat. I mean, that's just yeah. the truth well, of it. Exactly, he was like a liaison, essentially. Totally, yeah. he might have been rooting for that particular operation, but he was still sure, following yeah, Godfrey's yeah. mandate, right? Exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So again, so like I had mentioned that uh, mincemeat was. Uh, I mean, they oper- that operation was to you know procure a body and uh, put documents and and sort of just have it do the same kind of thing. We're just we'll try and 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 have it available for um, German intelligence and whoever to pick it up and read it and then expect this and hopefully believe it. Uh, but yeah. again, it was a part of a larger operation of uh, of Operation Barclay uh, because there was again there was a f- there was quite a few um, different operations 
it was all sort of part of one thing. So Barclay is sort of the broad category of we're going to use deception to trick the Germans into believing we're invading somewhere besides Sicily, like maybe Sardinia or maybe Greece exactly. instead. And that way, uh, and Operation Mincemeat was was one of the ideas that they had, one of the brainstorms, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way Godfrey definitely seemed to look at it, it at was, least in the in the film anyways. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not familiar with how he felt about it personally, historically, but I'm just saying is, is that that seemed to be one operation that they had in, on the boiler that they could use to realize this goal of tricking them so that they can invade a relatively um, defortified. Exactly. System. Exactly. And, and then they realized what they had to do is, I mean, they had, they came up with like a fake, they came up with fake armies and fake radio traffic that uh, they were hiring Greek translators and, and, and agents and all this kind of stuff. This is the 12th army, I, I think, that you mentioned to me, right? That's like the fake 12th army that they had stationed in North Africa that didn't really exist. And this was the force, so to speak, that they would make the Germans believe would be doing the in, the invading of Greece or Sardinia, Correct. for example. That's right. Um, so, exactly. So then, I, okay, and then obviously when we get into, um, you know, what it – so let's – I guess what we should talk about are the people that were going to do this. So there's – uh, the 20 committee, which actually was XX. Now, the point of the 20 committee is uh, the XX stands for like, it's also supposed to be like double cross because they run double agents. Oh, okay. Roman, Roman numerals, numerals exactly. double cross. Now, yeah, there okay. is sort of a reference yeah, yeah. In, in, in the book by McIntyre saying that it may have had something to do. They came up with the idea from uh, Charlie Chaplin's film, The Little Dictator, where he used the two X's as the <laughs> fake Nazi symbol. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. Right. right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. He had like the X. I remember seeing it. So they're saying that may have been a reference to that. Um, And and so with with the 20 committee, the chairman was John Masterman, and he was in charge of it. And uh, basically, he had uh, hired Chomley and uh, actually was uh, Godfrey that then had asked Montague to join. And then when you put those two guys together, they were the ones, they were the brainchilds of, of uh, Mitzvah in, in, in general. Um, and Chomley, Chomley is interesting because he is, again, one of those, like, as they said, a, a corkscrew mind. And, he, I mean, he was a 25-year-old flight left at it who couldn't fly. He was basically blind. So he, and if yeah. he, I thought it was funny. In, in, huh. in the film, <laughs> he calls himself a penguin. And you and Montague was like, "What?" He's like, well, "I'm a flight uh, with does, Bert." Yeah. I'm like, "I think that's hilarious," because mm-hmm. as much as he was RAF, he was basically seconded to the MI5, and he was excellent in what he did for you know uh, counterintelligence and and all that kind of stuff. And he definitely was an out of box thinker. Um, he had so many little like wacky harebrained schemes that one of them would work, one of them would stick. And it's funny that he called it Trojan mm-hmm, horse, mm-hmm. which is like, that's a little too on the nose. And in fact, they all said, it's a little too on the nose. Let's call it something else. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in a way, being too on the nose is well, kind she's of the, also thing what, the enemy would, the enemy would think maybe it's too on the nose, you know, so you're, you're, you're perfectly right. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so, w- yeah, again, with, with the 20 committee, it was kind of like an all-star team of, um, you know, X, X Bletchley Park. Well, not X, but I mean, you know, it just, and it's, 
it just a uh, it was a culmination of just out of box thinkers, intelligence people. Um, uh, just it was an all star team of just out of box thinkers and 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 part of the intelligence community. And uh, you just put them in a room and see what what you can get. I mean that I mean that's very general, but that's it's like Saturday Night Live yeah, writers exactly. room. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, just uh, see what happens. Possibly more smoke, less cocaine. Um, just give them all yeah. marijuana. The, Depends the, 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 on the era. With, with yeah, great exactly. ideas. <laughs> Yeah. It's one of those things where when you have a, a group of people that, that um, you, you bring them together and they're all that type of individual, it's, um, it really helps when you're trying to think up uh, new ways of, of deception. And when you know, you're, you're, you're tasked with coming up and finding a way, especially with how urgent it is, um, to figure out a way to faint uh, an incoming invasion, which could potentially, you know, if this is catastrophic, like this, this definitely like mincemeat and the successful invasion of Sicily being Husky changed, changed the war. Obviously we don't know what would have happened if it didn't work, but it did. And uh, mm-hmm, you know, yeah, thank goodness it, it did. did. And there's a lot of key players. There's so many cogs in, in the wheel. There's so many little things that, made it work so and you know they have to they were like okay so we need to find a body but what kind of body who how who's going to find the body and um what's really interesting is that after everything was said and done like after the war they were wanting to publish montague wanted to publish and other people wanted to publish and they were saying well Okay, but at the same time, it's like it's one of those things where it's not necessarily the intelligence when they want to declassify documents. It's not necessarily about the intel; it's how they got it, and that was the big thing. Was that it would yeah, be how they yeah how thing. they achieved it? Um, if they released the information on how they were one, how <laughs> the British government allowed them to just basically steal a body. Two, the involvement of the Spanish government. <laughs> Uh, that would have been a complete um, political nightmare for everyone. To, That's a die roll yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Yes, you're damn right so, it is. Yeah, like you have the morality of using a body for this kind of work. There's that Christian mm-hmm. morality mm-hmm. in play, which is ingrained into the British yeah. culture, right? Then you have the variable of Spain. Like, I mean, Spain is occupied, obviously, uh, by a fascist government, but at the same time, there's going to be people in the regime that are sympathetic to more democratic, constitutional monarchy, Democrat sort of exactly. way. Uh, so th- you, you roll a dice. There's many variables in which you roll a dice to get to where we need to go. Um, so they need to, what you're saying here is they need to use a body and put letters on that body and somehow get it to the Germans. So how are they able to use this corpse to convince the Germans that it was the real McCoy. Well, there was, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different things they had to do uh, to make that work. So first they thought they were going to parachute it into the water to make it look like that, you know, and, and then have the documents on, like, like a plane crash, crash, like the one exactly. in Africa. And then they were also yeah. saying like, well, okay, then why don't we have like a seaplane and then we just put a, a charge on it and blow it up. And they said, no, because there's too, that, that's too risky. And what if the body gets... Could destroy the documents. Too? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so there's that, that, got, that got ruled out 
there's so many different possibilities. So ultimately what they came up with is that the best possible solution would be if they're going to have a body wash up on shore with documents, potentially the best way to do it would be with a submarine. But then the thing is, is that where are you going to find a body and where are you going to find a body soon enough? And, you know, a submarine ready enough or sorry, um, station. So then they were like, well, we have to look, we have to look through cadavers and we have to find the right one. We can't, you know, and especially because if there's going to be an autopsy and then they were talking about like, well, especially like, what if they do an autopsy? What if, what, and, what if the person, what if the, the coroner or the pathologist is an expert and then they realize, well, this, this person died from something else, died many, many days previous. So they really had to think of, of ways on how to either mask that or make it look like it was believable. Right. And uh, it's almost comical, whereas all the, the work they put into getting uh, the body who was um, – uh, Glenn, Glendor, uh, I don't know if I'm saying that correct. My Welsh is terrible. <laughs> um, Glendor Michael, Glendor Michael, um, who was the actual individual who ended up becoming um, acting Major um, William Martin, Royal Marines. Um, that was the name they chose. Name they chose um, is they ended up finding this body in uh, the Glendor Michael. He's that's a very tragic story. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, what happened is um, he. It, what it seems like is that he ingested rat poison, whether it was suicide or by accident, they don't know. But when they found the body, uh, he, it was fairly fresh, and because of the, the the nature of the poisoning, they could make it look like a drowning. But they had to really act upon it, and so they they had to make sure once they figured out they were going to use him, then they would put it in the best possible freezer and they had a three-month window from there they had to start figuring out um the logistics of of how they would do this and there there's so many parts to it like they have to find the right uniform um uh, they have to and they they thought like it, it's not going to be this isn't just going to be like drop them there and be like oh here's the keys to the castle um here's the code word you know here's my Here's my sin number. <laughs> they got to. They got to have. It's like little breadcrumbs, right? And and ultimately, you and Montague and Chomley had to come up with sort of a whole background story, um, like a whole life story, because they wanted to make this person real, and so they because they had to mix the real person and the intelligence documents to make this look just like a normal person uh mm-hmm. bigger than lie because you have to you have to telegraph that and because people are ironically quoting Goebbels, but <laughs> yeah well exactly and I, what was ironic was that Goebbels did not believe the documents at all he, he mm-hmm. didn't uh and luckily anyways yeah and von Roon, and it's funny because the film uh, well the, the film really kind of skips over that the importance of fun rune but um it's only so much well, you can do in two exactly. hours right and, it's like yeah. absolutely yeah, that's, that's it yeah 
Like Ben Ben McIntyre himself said that in a recent interview I listened to on the BBC that uh, although the film by John Madden did leave a lot of features out, the variables and the complexities and and just the colorful cast of people who contributed, small or large, um, you, you simply can't cram them into a a single feature film and i know when we get to talk about the film we'll probably talk about what could have been done and what might yet be done but the truth is that ben mcintyre at least i don't feel as though uh, from what i listened to and what i read he seems quite complimentary about madden's film he doesn't seem to think that they screwed around with his with the material or redeveloped or kind of romanticized history he chose features to highlight for the sake of an audience film and that's fine. Well, I, I'm happy but, that um, there is only so much you and can do. There is do. only so much you can do. Yes. Um, I'm, the only yeah, there's only so much you can do. Um, there's another a good example. I just want to kind of go over like a, a fun, well, fun. There's something, and they did mention it in the film, and it was called the ha- Halversack ruse. Do you guys remember hearing about that in the film? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that was a really interesting um, little tidbit, and it was from a crazy guy it was and this quote is actually from t.e lawrence he was actually the pillars seven pillars of wisdom seven pillars of wisdom i I think it's seven pillars seven pillars of wisdom yeah okay so there was a a british soldier and ironically enough he had a super german name which also actually helped with the deception (laughs) because the german and turks were like what why is this this british with the super german name what's he doing Mm mm-hmm his name is Leonard Sagan. And uh, basically he knew that the key to an effective deceit is not merely to conceal what you were doing, but to persuade the other side that what you were doing is the reverse of what you're actually doing. So he stuffed a haversack with false documents, a diary and 20 pounds in cash and smeared it with his horse's blood. Sorry, horse (laughs) then rode out into no man's land until shot at by Turks uh, and upon which he slumped in the saddle as if he was wounded, dropped the haversack, binoculars and rifle, and galloped back to the British lines. And ultimately, they took it. They found his uh, the bag and all that, and all all the stuff that he had dropped, and they had read it and gobbled it up, <laughs> hook, line, and sinker. And uh, mm. he also wrapped uh, the food with a map and detailings of what they were going to do. And they thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. And and they followed it. And, and obviously, the plan actually worked. Now, there is also some contention saying that it, they can't actually necessarily prove that it was because he did that, that the plan worked. But it's, it's still it was an mm. interesting idea. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So the background of this idea of using a body or using some sort of object to create misinformation and deception for the enemy, uh, I think what you're what you're telling us here is that this seems to be a long-standing element of British British espionage. British espionage, but just in general, it's it's not necessarily a new. Uh, form of deception, but um, but but yes, yes. <laughs> not new, but it's a unique form of deception that it seems that the British have used in the tradition in the past. You mentioned with T. E. Lawrence quote. You mentioned just in regard to what happened uh, in Spain during the Operation Torch with with, with the um, officer that was found dead with the papers and all this sort of stuff. So now they have the idea now with mincemeat that they're going to do the exact same thing. They have a corpse now. What elements did they create or use? 
to make this man, uh, Glendower, Michael, become William Martin? Like, what did they do to create this fictional but real-life person? So how did they legitimize the history? Yeah, story? That, exactly. That is a great question. So what they had to do is they had to basically make him a soldier. Now, obviously, uh, the, the real person was not eligible for military service. They believe uh, – it's a very sad story. It seems like his father – who was a very poor um, coal miner in Wales. Um, apparently he had syphilis and they believe possibly that um, when Glinder Michael was born, he contracted it because obviously he gave it, the father gave it to the mother. They believe possibly that uh, he contracted it as well. His father was, looks like he was mentally ill and he actually ended up, um, killing himself, stabbing himself with a knife in front of his kids. And so they've, he saw, and Glenn or Michael saw too, and he was obviously distraught and that kind of thing. And you can see where this led down the path exactly. of becoming, and, as you say, distraught, of uh, becoming schizophrenic exactly. possibly from the, as a result of the syphilis. So this led him to his tragic end of consuming the arsenic, whether it was suicidal or whether it was simply yes, just. Exactly part of his insanity, um, I, I, I suppose, that led to exactly. his death, but which then provided a corpse for the British, for Chumley and Montague to use for Operation That's correct. Uh, exactly. So he, he ended up dying in London. So then they, when they find the body, they, they figure he seems to be best suited because um, he's fresh. He's a military age. That's the other thing is they, they wanted to make sure that the, <laughs> the corpse was um, male, military service age. And, uh, and obviously still intact and that it could pass uh, as a drowning um, and that kind of thing like that. The other thing that they were really banking on it because they were planning to, again, drop the body on the coast of Spain. They were trying to figure out if it was Portugal or Spain, but they figured a Catholic country like that because they would be more adverse to um, autopsies and performing autopsies because obviously mm. it'd be a lot better if they didn't because <laughs> then, you know, if, yeah. If they're very good at their jobs, they could figure out that it wasn't the obviously the cause mm -hmm. of death was not drowning, and he yeah. uh, yes. passed away quite a period before um, it's supposed to be. He was supposed to have perished, and um, they they enlisted him in the military. They gave him a rank, a name, everything. He had bank accounts. Uh, they gave him a whole family. They 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 even concocted uh, love notes, obviously with Pam, um, and and with his father. They they even concocted like uh, family members and and sort of. Uh, yeah, Pam is mentioned in the film, but where did the idea of Pam originate from? Um, well, they came up with Pam because they wanted to, to have a personality so they, they could actually, when the Germans see the information, it's not just like, well, they uh, they want, they didn't want to just have like, oh, he only has documents. We need to, we need to, you know, carry on the ruse of this is a person. So they wanted to have personal documents. So, th and they have right. to have every detail, right? And the more detail, uh, the more real, the easier the lie. So right. course, the more right. creative, the more, the more so world building, it, you know, you, you can, and, establish. And, you know, and exactly. even, even sympathy exactly. in the sense like, okay, so he was going, he's going to get married. They even had the ring. They had the receipt for the ring um, and all this kind of stuff. And they even talked about like, oh, you know, he's not great with his money. He bought too expensive a ring. He's got mm -hmm. an overdraft letter in there, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. The idea of world building, it's like 
if, if anyone who's ever played well, any role-playing no, games role-playing. like Dungeons and Dragons or something, some people go hardcore into the backgrounds of their characters, right? Guilty. And this is kind of what they're doing here because the, yeah, they are kind of role-playing <laughs> in a way here, right? It's like Dungeons and Dragons I mean, on and, a big scale. And you can scale. see in the film, they really got into it. You're just going right into the letters and writing all that kind of stuff, right? So, uh, you know, and, yeah, and but that, that, you know that, that's something we should, we should actually stay on that yeah. point for just a moment or two because it, it – it, you know, the connections between espionage and narratology or, you know, writing, the practice of writing fiction. You think about some of these these uh, spies from the 20th and century, John I, Buck and Ian Fleming, Somerset Mom, Graham they're Green. All awesome. They're all wonderful fiction yeah, writers, exactly. you know. And that's, yes. I don't, and um, that's. John LeCard, as I, well, right? John LeCard. Yeah. McIntyre mentioned that too. It's amazing Buck. how many great uh, fiction or even, I mean, obviously nonfiction authors uh, were employed as uh, secret agents or intelligence officers in the 20th century or even before that there's other examples Mm -hmm. but especially um, for uh, the British uh, secret service and and, uh, intelligence community so so many um and the and the unwritten stories of all the female writers as well, you know, who yes. whose stories yeah. don't and get told. Yes. I mean, we, we, know. we know of so we know of some of them, but the Bletchley Park women, and I mean, the, there will be so many just and, and people who aren't published as well. You know, there's the creative minds that turn to writing, whether it's journals or fiction, nonfiction. There's just got to be so well, many. That's, of them. Again, that's where it comes from the mind, the creativity. You have to be creative. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, think outside the box. And that's what it comes exactly. From. So that's what they did. They thought outside the box. They took uh they took a, a reality which was this man who died a tragic ending but but he was of serving age so they could use him to create him into this william martin they gave him a background they gave him this girlfriend pam they gave him uh, a family they gave him bank debts you know like they did all these things mm-hmm. to create this reality which they needed to do to you know, some people would be like, well, they just need to do this basics and then, and then you know, we can, we can only do so much. Are we going to actually go into the detail and create a whole reality just for this situation? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. When you have so many lives yeah. and material on the line here. Because, you know, the organization so, by the abware and intelligence is going to be, uh, you know, intense. Yeah. And they really yeah. did go exactly. over every single word, sentence, paragraph. Um, yeah. Obviously, there was a lot more um, raking over the documents when it eventually went up to the the, the German high command with von Run and his people. But it's got to be believable. They also had to make sure you know he had a uniform. So what? So that's why if you see um, uh, Chomley, uh, it, it, you know he's wearing a Royal Marine Combined Operations uniform, and they had to. And the thing is, is like they can't just put a brand new uniform on because that doesn't make any sense, right? So he literally wore it for months and had the patina and the wear and tear of someone that would have worn it. Um, yeah. We talk a lot about spycraft, you know, liking the moments of spycraft in the films when we get them. Um, and, you know, we'll notice when we don't get them, for example. But this is really the bricks and mortar of spycraft behind the scenes. And the story yeah. of Operation Mincemeat, I think, would appeal to those military historians, those dramatic fans, those readers or listeners or whatever. It would ap- it would appeal to people who, who don't necessarily want the, right, let's go balls to the wall action, but instead... How are these little things, these little things that turn to massive turning points, you know, how are these little things conjured and concocted and presented mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, ultimately executed? Uh, Mincemeat Stands, I think, is a great example of an operation that 
is revelatory, you know, with those sort of features. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are other examples of, you know, spycraft for operations that are similar, but not on the scale of, of, of Mitsubi to this point. Uh, and even, I believe, even like the the deception um, operation that was used for D-Day, which actually had some of the same players as in this operation, was not not oh. to the scope of Mitsubishi. That's the thing, I think, where they were going to convince them that they're going to go for the Pas exactly. de Calais and not for Normandy, yeah. right? And they did like those inflatable tanks and stuff in the south yeah. of England to mm-hmm. kind of, <laughs> so that the German aerials, you know, the planes flying over would, would see, you know, like something going on down there, right? Yeah, so man, could be a section, yeah. And yeah, to be honest, exactly. uh, and we'll, we'll get to this individual later, but Von Run, if it wasn't for him, D-Day nor uh, Husky Mincemeat would have actually worked. He was bullshitting the yeah. bullshit to then have the people need the information and say it's more important and then trying to run it up the chain. And ironically enough, because he's anti-Nazi, he said, oh, yeah, this is perfect. And so because Hitler would believe anything, if, if Hitler was standing in a rainstorm and Ron said, oh, man, it's so hot today, you know, we better put on the sunscreen, Hitler would put on, like, you know, co- copper tone, like, UV-79. He believed everything he said. <laughs> and it's funny because UV-43. Goebbels didn't thought that this information, you know, ultimately he was like, no, this information is too good. I don't believe it. But but your propaganda minister shut up and go and write his but it's for me. funny because there's a lot of people that were poking <laughs> holes in it. And Von Roon is like, no, it's good. But there's technically, though, they never knew if he – they also think that he – even if he – didn't know if it was good intelligence or not. He still gave it to him because they, they figured he probably thought it was too good to be true, but he made sure that he said it was good. So then the Germans acted upon it. Okay, cool. Just to clarify um, what Jeff is telling you here, if you're not familiar with Operation Mincemeat and you're first learning of it now on this podcast, or if you saw the film Operation Mincemeat, there actually was a strong anti-Nazi resentment in the Wehrmacht, in the German army, and particularly in the Abwehr, the German military intelligence division. Uh, they were not Gestapo. They were not uh, like SS. They were not SD. They were like pure, like these were old school, or almost run by aristocratic Prussians, not Nazis that were in control here. And they were supported by Hitler because they were loyal to Germany, but they kept their beliefs about Nazism to themselves. Yeah, their, like Oscar Schindler. I, guess, I know he was an industrialist, like, but the same sort well, of similar, sentiments. Yeah, and Von Rune was an exactly. example of that because apparently his he his he came from uh, almost like not- nobility there. Like he he had a very fit, uh, well-to-do family. He's actually Latvian born, and uh, and he hated the Nazis. Apparently, he was very cold and he had no friends and no one could ever figure him out. Mm-hmm. But he played the long game yeah. from, right from the beginning. What I'm wondering is, is that when I mentioned the idea about the anti-Nazis, was he involved with was Valkyrie, not. with like Stoppenberg and all that? But oh, really? He ended up, so he was involved on the assassination No, attempts. but he ended up, um, he was uh, killed in 1944. Like he wasn't, he didn't last. He was executed. He was, exe- he was executed. He was executed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I he see. survived this. He survived yeah. this. So, and he able, I mean, was able this, to get this done, yeah. right? He he was the other variable besides all of the that's, clever planning of mincemeat with the body <laughs> and planting the documents. This that, variable, as you said, thing. of of von Rennen is 
Like he, that was key to the whole thing. Yeah. What's really funny is all the work they did to make the body look, uh, you know, the, the uniform, uh, all this kind of stuff. And when they, when they deployed it, how they deployed it, where they deployed it, it's, it's almost comical because when they were doing the autopsy, the Spanish, they were poking holes in it and it was so close. He was a he was a very good pathologist, better than the guy that they thought was going to do it. And and what's interesting is that he was doing the autopsy. He's like, oh, this is interesting. How come his uniform isn't? There's more. It's not as soggy or, or worn from the the you know the water and and the time salt, and the salt water. water. And he's like, and this is the part that I thought was funny. He's like, that's funny. He's been in the water how long? And there's no fish bites. I'm like, oh my god, yeah, fish bites. <laughs> you know, mm, mm, and mm. and um, these little things like fish bites almost totally screwed them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and especially it, it, there was this scene in the film where they were about to. He was like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to do the autopsy now." And then they were like, uh, "And and Gomez uh, Bear was like, hey, let's just call it a day." And and it was actually this guy named uh, Hasselden who was a uh, vice consul, and he knew that he like he, he, the thing is he was only told little bits right need to know but he knew that this is bad so we had to come up with uh, mm-hmm. reason to stall them and like let's get it over with yeah you know? but uh, mm-hmm. but it but they managed to cut it short I guess and, and get to, and yeah besides the, the besides the pathologists uh, nitpicking. I guess procedure and bureaucracy took over so that he was able to able to move to the next step, which was to get the documents on the body to Madrid and then somehow get well, it to the, the fastest it- network and, and, and make it make its way to uh, what's his uh, Brennan. I forget his name now. Kesselridden or, or who, who was the German to Kulenthal. Yes. Well, what's, what's interesting is that they, they were really trying to figure out the best place to have the body wash up. And again, that's a crop shoot anyways. Like who knows? Cause that's what they were. They, I mean, they were talking yeah. to this guy. Um, he was a hydrographer where they were asked. I think that's the right term. And basically they were saying, what do we do? What about the tides? We're doing it this time. Like what if it get washes away? What if it goes this direction, that direction? What, you know, uh, and so they were really kind of hoping that it would get washed up in a certain area that they knew was basically infiltrated and had a whole bunch of Germans, you know, it'd be in Spanish slash German hands. Cause the person in charge of the Spanish secret service was actually an abware completely under German pay and all that kind of stuff. But, um, it was almost comical how close it was to getting nixed. Uh, <laughs> Right off the just for little things like that, and then what was funny is that then they were like, "Hey, you know what? We're going to give you the when the when the British uh, when the British were there at the autopsy, they're like, here, why don't you just take the documents?'" And they're like, "Shit, <laughs> no, we can't mm-hmm. do that because mm-hmm. all this work and they're just going to give that's it right, right. back." They got to stay. Actually, they got to move their way that, up the chain. That, that's mm-hmm. true. That was the, and so they kind of had to make it like, well, let's go through official channels, and then they're like, "Well, okay, but." Then we also kind of, you, you know, we want to, to see the documents, but we don't. <laughs> we want. We don't want to show know, our hand. Yeah, and if I over if I over dramatize, if I overplay this but gesture, it was, it was crazy. Red. Like yeah, the, the yeah. intercepts going back and forth, because then they were having to do the radio traffic that they knew was bugged, and then they had other radio traffic that mm-hmm. they knew wasn't bugged. So they were saying one thing and then saying another. Like once they realized radio traffic mentioning 
uh, an officer and just sort of how, how it works with the standard operating procedure, if it's over open communications and then it gets back to London and then someone else sees this and then they realize, oh, that, that doesn't really, that's not up to snuff. There's something wrong here. That would cause undue notice within, you know, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the ranks there. And then that would cause, you know, knocks on the door or that kind of stuff. And then that could cause a lot of issue. And so they had a backup plan. And so um, the naval attache, Alan Hilgarth, who apparently is also uh, for going, for leading back to uh, to Bond, he was um, a, an acquaintance of, of Ian Fleming. He's, I can definitely see why he would be someone that James Bond would have been uh, <laughs> created after. Um, he, mm-hmm. he was, he had uh, a backup plan and he, had, he was telling you know, this is what needs to happen when they're getting the radio traffic. He was like, look, we need to come up with an answer. And when they had that ready, MI6 didn't action it quick enough. And so then they were like in this whole, it was a shit storm. And they're right. like, we need to figure out like a backup, mm-hmm. backup plan. And then at one point they didn't know where the documents were. And so they didn't know if <laughs> no one knew where the documents were. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy. And unfortunately that wasn't necessarily really well documented in the, in the film, but that's, that's something else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another one of these features that you're not, I mean, you could make an episode out of but that. This so. is again, this is what I find interesting is it's the human aspect of it. It's sort of just how you can go through all this. And then it's the little things like, because um, a cool. little thing could throw oh. you off, could ruin your plans. Oh, wanted to save his own ass and inflate things. So he actually mm-hmm. made mm-hmm. it <laughs> he actually helped and then on top of that the person at the highest level of intelligence was anti-hitler uh and playing the long mm-hmm. game and inflated that on top of that because even if when Kulenthal brought it himself to the high command to have it vetted the people there were shitting on it and then he had veto power and he was like no this is good stuff and they're like really He's like, yeah i said it's fine it's fine and hitler's like he said it's fine. It's fine. It's carte blanche. Well, Hitler wasn't a no. strategist, and he at all. needed to he win. Was, and he, and he, he wanted he, to he win. He he needed yes men, and, and, and that's it. And he wanted to win. You know? So it's just yeah. That, he was I not a strategist at all. Ridiculous and very lucky. As much as Mitzmeat was a success, it's just like, and I mean, obviously, all the people that were a part of it in the planning, they did an excellent job. But really, it it just came down to. Uh, you got a few individuals and, and there's luck. a healthy dose of luck there. Yeah. And I think the top, it's this is cool. something that McIntyre said, sorry, Josh, I know you want to get in there with your quote, but just because it, it's, it steals on from what we got here. Like I remember McIntyre saying something that, that kind of is, is echoing here in, in our conversation that, that, that the top brass, I mean, you got the book, you'll probably know the quote, but the top brass were very fearful of this, obviously, because it wasn't just like, it wasn't just a tactical deception. It was a strategic deception. So it wasn't just something that might get screwed off like the milkman's off on a different road today. Shit, we messed up. This is, if this messes up, like tens of, maybe hundreds of exactly. thousands of lives get fucked, exactly. right? And Holmes yes. get, yeah, it's, just, it's all... Because Sicily will be properly, like imagine if D-Day, if the Germans weren't on maneuvers, if they, had, if they hadn't bought the Pas de Calais, yeah. Like the Germans were like the Germans weren't weren't prepared for having the Atlantic Wall attacked from Normandy. They were expecting Pas de Calais. So imagine Sicily 
properly reinforced with both mm-hmm. Italians and German uh, divisions there. And then the allies invading at that time, Husky would have been Absolutely. a disaster. It oh, would have yeah. been like, it would have totally been like, yeah, path. or even yeah. worse yeah. or even worse. And, right. So. Ironically enough, um, major Martin, they made him at Dieppe and he, and apparently in, in the mm-hmm. note, it even mentioned that he was, he figured Dieppe wasn't going to work. And I thought that was kind of ironic. <laughs> Well, his papers got through all of the maneuverings of the British intelligence in uh, Huelva, uh, with the port town, and then in Madrid. Uh, they managed to get that to the fascist network, and that got all the way to von Runa, despite Kulenthal's incompetence that worked in their advantage. And then von Runa, he happened to be the inside man that the British needed, that's uh, where the Allies yeah. needed. And he said, I understand there's skepticism towards this, Monfuhr. But yeah. we have to move our troops around because it looks like they're going for Greece or Sardinia. We have to prepare for this. Uh, the Allies are pushing forward, uh, but we have to we have to move the troops around here. And and they accepted it, right? That's essentially what happened. Is that mm, the rest? And is then history. I guess yeah. the, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's crazy to think about how those variables ultimately decide the course of human history. You know, these little variables, these these small groups of people can, can do it, you know, like it's, it's crazy. It's, it's kind of like if Thermopylae and Salamis never happened, those victories that the Greeks had against the Persians, if those battles weren't fought, then the whole history of Western civilization would, would be totally different than, (laughs) than what, what we stand in now, what we live in now. So it's just these events, they just take one little push of fate. And then here we are today. It's it's just incredible it to think about. It really is. You can see why Werner Herzog views the world as chaotic and random, can't you? <laughs> like you can. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. There's, there's the chaos theory. Well, and, working with Klaus you know. Kinski, I mean, of course you would. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. Even the um, Jock Horsfall, who is the driver. I don't know if you, the, the, he was like drunk. Have you? Oh yeah. He was a real person, man. I, he had a cool job. He was basically like an MI five chauffeur, and he would drive double agents, prisoners of war you know, uh, high-ranking officials, wherever. He was basically like Mario Andretti of the time. And he and he had this souped-up <laughs> uh, he had this souped up truck, and he drove like a bat out of hell from London to um, Holly Lock. And he al- they almost died because he almost drove off the road because he was driving with no headlights and he was drunk. And, like, he almost killed them all more than once. And he ended up dying uh, in a car accident in a race in 1949. <laughs> went out the way he lived Uh, you know i guess that's fitting despite being tragic but yeah i guess that's fitting in a way so this is a uh a quote here from rick atkinson's uh the day of battle it's volume two of his liberation trilogy which is a great uh trilogy on the entire allied second front opening up Mm. from 1941 to night for 1941-42 to 1945, the end of the war. It covers both mm-hmm. the British, American, though, and all their and all their efforts, uh, which is pretty neat, actually. So once the Germans bought the ruse that it's going to be Sardinia or Greece, and they move their troops around, this is what the Allies unknowingly were facing in oh, in okay, Sicily. Yes. <laughs> Six immobile and badly armed Italian coastal divisions now guarded the Sicilian shore backed by four Italian infantry divisions positioned inland with two capable German units. Two capable German units. The 15th Panzer Grenadier Division in western Sicily and the Hermann Goering Panzer Division 
seems sort of like why would they name yeah, a Panzer Division I mean, after you, Gurney? Yeah, I know. Was, off I, a guy. I thought that was funny too. Mm-hmm. He probably well, named it himself, most likely, given his bloatedness. <laughs> uh, Literally. And those were in the east. Uh, the first unequivocal alert had been issued on Sicily at 6.40 on Friday evening, July 9th. Allied bombs had shattered the rudimentary Sicilian telephone system, so some units got the word, but others did not. A few Italian commanders, presuming that no fool would attack in such foul weather, went to bed. Exhortations at 1 a.m. Saturday to defend this most precious piece of Italian soil fell on deaf or sleeping ears. British Spitfires, using signals intelligence to pinpoint the German Luftwaffe headquarters, shot up San Domenico Palace, a grand hotel in Turamina, once favored by D.H. Lawrence, mm, and unhinged the Axis Air Force. No, it is legitimately. It is a, it's right oh, on the foot of Mount Etna. It is an absolute yeah. state. Beautiful. And unhinged the Axis Air Defenses just as invaders approached the island. Little was expected from the Sicilian coastal divisions, and that expectation was fully met. Training had recently been reduced because of footwear shortages, and Italian coastal artillery was limited to the pea shooter range of 9,000 yards, further impaired by morning glare that blinded defenders facing south and east. The Syracuse garrison commander was killed in the evasion's first minutes, and his skittish counterpart in Augusta spiked his guns without a fight. Italian foot soldiers surrendered by the thousands or peeled off their uniforms and melted into the refugee hordes streaming in land. The German response in those first irrecoverable hours, if less timid, was hardly impressive. Sicilian communications were so crude that the commander of the Hermann Göring division first learned that he was under attack in a radio alert from Frascati, the German headquarters near Rome. Now, the German headquarters in Rome uh, at Frascati, that was minded by Field Marshal Albert Kesslering. Oh, right. uh, and he completely dismissed the idea of, of an Italian division and, and everything. So Obviously, everyone believed the mandate that the Allies were going to go for Sardinia or Greece and not Italy. But already, Sicily was already a problem just because of the local militias there that were, were really the only thing that were holding it together and uh, two German divisions. And then that's it. So, and that the fact that they moved the troops out, that even lessened it even well, more, mm-hmm. right? It, yeah. Uh, the, the Americans even had their own little play in as well i read is that the gangster uh lucky oh, luciano yes. right. had connections yes. in sicily and they use luciano to yeah. weaken the and that's the, right. the uh the sicilian resolve against the allied invaders so they help things too once the allies yeah. established another the beachhead variable. to take sicily another variable all coming from mincemeat and the plan in in general so cool. yeah uh no i read a historical fiction book by W.B. Griffin, but but it basically did mention about how um, the OSS and the FBI worked alongside with the Italian Cosa Nostra uh, in New York City uh, who had connections with like the Cosa, like the Cosa Nostra uh, in, in um, Sicily and, and, and it helped with connections and, and uh, communications and all that kind of stuff in relation to, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's very, very interesting because they were American and they were absolutely against um, fascism. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll help you out. So it's kind of like you scratch our backs, we'll scratch yours. Kind of like they'll look the other way, you know. <laughs> but anyways. I think Luciano had like a commute, like they commuted his sentence or something Possibly. like that. I think that was the, yeah. Um, so something that's interesting is that um, Mussolini didn't believe that Sicily wasn't 
<laughs> the target. And he's like, no, it's going to be the target. I don't know what you guys are thinking, Greece. And Hitler's like, no, it's going to be Greece. Shut up, Mussolini. And then when it happened, uh, uh, <laughs> Mussolini was like, okay, thanks. I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Hitler uh, pretty much saw Mussolini at oh, obviously. and didn't really care what he had to say whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, gents, um, have we got more to add on the historical note, or should we transition into our discussion of the film um, itself for our last one question? thing? So I just kind of have a couple of notes. I just want to sort of have some little nuggets of, of Fleming. Uh, and so I, I did, I okay, did nice find one. a neat little um, tidbit of uh, his uh, Red Indians. I, I know that's mm-hmm. uh, not exactly um, PC, um, but he called his uh, his own little – um, commando unit um, that was under the NID, which is Naval Intelligence uh, Division, uh, which he was sort of the the quote unquote general of um, 30 AU. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a really cool quote about that. But one thing I did, I sent you guys a, a document I just was able to find. I thought it was interesting. Um, it was written by Fleming. And it's funny because his code his code name was F and I'm like, yeah, that's really a good code because your last name is Fleming. Uh, (laughs) uh, But basically what it, what it outlines is this document is him saying that um, they want to have like their own little um, commando force. Boys with toys. That's exactly what it is. Um, And Godfrey says, um, um, there's a note. Basically, Godfrey said, "Yes, most decidedly, we won't submit the principle, but worked out in detail in collaboration with the com- chief of combined operations. He thinks it's a good idea, so he wants his team uh, to keep hold of it." It was basically him saying, uh, "From what I can see here, is that uh, proposal for a naval commando unit, which would end up being uh, what Fleming called the Red Indians or the 30 AU." And uh, I do have a quote from the book. And again, there, there was not a, a lot of um, Fleming-related information. And I'm, again, when I go when I say book, I'm talking about uh, Ben McIntyre's Operation uh, Mincemeat, clearly. Uh, but there is a little neat information when it kind of, for bringing it back, um, uh, it's uh, ironically enough, and I'll, I'll read it, but um, at the end of the war, right at April 45, when uh, when Berlin fell, um, a group of uh, of thirty AU they actually um, found and and captured the German High Command's archives, and the documents they found were the actual documents of Mitzmi. So ironically, so it's kind of wow. kind of interesting. Fleming's crew reclaimed yeah. the documents. Yeah, that's pretty. Cool. Um, and mm-hmm. so I'll I'll just I'll read that excerpt if that's okay with you guys. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. for sure. And they were moved from North Africa, weren't they, to uh, to Sicily? Yes. I just I just remember uh, that Pearson wrote in Fleming's biography something to that effect that they they were not actively involved in the first wave of Operation no, Minsk, yeah. but they did reinforce. They reinforced the Italian campaign shortly after leaving North Africa. Yeah. So they must have went to like Anzio and uh, Salerno mm-hmm. and stuff like yeah, that, right? That would make sense. Uh, okay. So, yes. Um, here's the quote uh, from, again, this is from Ben McIntyre's Operation, uh, Operation Mincemeat. 
British intelligence would not discover the name of the man who handed over the Mitsumi papers to the Germans for another two years. In April 1945, as the Nazis retreated, a group of British naval intelligence commandos, a unit set up by none other than Ian Fleming, captured the entire German admiralty. Oh, sorry, I said I said um, high command. I apologize. Uh, German admiralty archives at Tambak Castle near Coburg. Fleming himself traveled to Germany to supervise the unit he referred to as his Red Indians and ensure the safe return of the German files to Britain. Among the documents were several relating to Operation Mincemeat, including one revealing the identity of the officer of the Spanish general staff who presented the documents to the Abwehr. This was one uh, Mm. Lieutenant Colonel Ramon Pardo Suarez, pardon my pronunciation, Uh, described by the Germans as a Spanish staff officer with well-established connections and an informant with whom we have been in contact for many years. Years later, William Leisner was still covering up Pardo's identity, describing him merely as a Spanish agent in the general staff. One other thing I do just like, I want to, which I find really interesting. And they did, they did kind of mention it, uh, in, in the film itself, was how the hell did they get the documents out of the envelopes? Like, you know how they said they... Mm. The movie they showed did, us, but is that true? Like, is that how yeah, it but, it, it, glossed, it glossed over what would have really been a... Honestly, that's, it's process. impressive. And it's kind of funny, too. Uh, well, funny. It's just because they use bubble gum, but it's... Uh, so I'm just going to read you an excerpt again. This is an excerpt from the book. Um, the British later worked out exactly how the Spanish had performed this delicate and difficult task. The letters had been stuck down with gum and then secured with oval wax seals. Those seals held the envelopes closed as all the gum had washed off. By pressing on the top and bottom of the envelope, the lower flap of the envelope, which was larger than the top one, could be bent open. Inserting a thin metal double prong with a blunt metal hook into the gap, the Spanish spies snagged the bottom edge of the letter, wound the still damp paper tightly around the probe into a cylindrical shape and then pulled it out through a hole in the bottom half. Even the British, normally so dismissive of the espionage efforts of others, this is true, uh, were impressed by the Spaniards' ingenuity. Wow. It's almost like uh, reminding me of... uh, yeah, when they, I know the, um, the uh, mummification, when they squirrel out the brain from the nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just it's and again it's it's just so fortunate that it was a single sheet instead of like yeah, there being yeah. multiple pages. You know that would have that that would have almost scunnered the shit. Exactly. The letters were carefully dried with a heat lamp. No one, needless to say, noticed a microscopic eyelash falling out of the unfolded sheet of notepaper. The letters were almost certainly copied by the Spanish officials, although no copies have ever come to light. There you go. Mm. Mm. Very cool. And the eyelash reminds me of Dr. No when he puts the, of uh, the film Dr. Oh, no, when the, he puts the yeah, hair right. on the closet door. Yeah. Right. Um, and if mm. I could just say um, the, the person that Im- impressed me the most out of like th- this amazing cast of, of, of real life characters, obviously that made an impact in the operation miss me is this captain Hillgrath, who I, I actually haven't, mentioned uh, by name yet and and i don't know why in the film they call him ainsworth he was the naval attache and everyone knows if you're a naval attache attache you're a spy um and mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's funny uh 
I uh, I knew an individual who um, did work in an embassy, and I was like, "Is that?" I I asked this gentleman, um, "Is that true? Like, are all attaches and embassies are they spies?" He's like, "Basically, yes. Like, it's just." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a code. It's a code, it's a code, code not yeah. code for spy. Exactly. Um, and uh, so, so this captain um, Hil- Hil- Hilgarth um, was the uh, naval attaché, and this guy is something. He's like Indiana Jones and James Bond put together. And I mean, he was friends with Godfrey, and that's actually how he became the naval attaché because he actually saved his life because um, he gave him safe passage in Spain. Um, before the war, uh, during the Spanish Civil War, and he also was um, friends and a personal spy to Churchill as well. But uh, and I, I know you guys are everybody needs a Caribbean Bay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah. again, um, he it's also he friend. actually there was Operation Goldeneye was actually him, and so that's obviously mm-hmm. where Fonding came cool. up with. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. Nice little trip. But yeah, I mean, he he's written six books. Uh, he went on a gold, uh, like a gold digging expedition in in Bolivia. It's just unbelievable, unbelievable. Lived his life. That's oh, for he sure. definitely. Yeah, yeah. He lived to about seventy nine. But boy, uh, I mean, he fought in Gallipoli at fourteen. He shot. He got shot in the head. Survived. He learned a bunch of languages. That's how he became so good. Uh, at, at, he he knew so many different mm-hmm. languages, and this is how he became good at being a spy and a uh, uh, you know mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. It's crazy. He was he joined the navy at thirteen, fought fought in the first world war thirteen fourteen, survived Gallipoli at fifteen. Uh, you know, it's crazy. Fought in the Spanish Civil war, fought in the second world war. Old. Jesus, yeah. and, and even spied in the fifties um, for uh, Churchill as well. Wow. Hey, there are the facts and on Operation Mincemeat and uh, pretty impressive facts. So although Ian Fleming had a role to play, um, he was in the room. He was in the room. Though it wasn't a big role that he was in the room. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, uh, no doubt that filtered into his fiction. It clearly, it would have. Because you could tell that he liked his work as much as it's a dirty job. I mean, obviously, he didn't. He never really got his hands dirty. Which uh, he, he seemed like he's the kind of character that he wanted to since that's where he kind of um, lives mm-hmm. vicariously through others, uh, and especially the way he writes. But, you know, he did make his mark and uh, in, in different ways, so that's clear there. Nice work, buddy. Good work. That was a, a lot of content to get through, but um, really good yeah. shedding light on, on mincemeat because it is topical right now. Uh, not just because of that anniversary, as you say earlier this month, but the film which uh, John Madden and that crew put together has uh, garnered a lot of, a lot of uh, critical acclaim. And it's a, it's a very popular, popular part of uh, World War II history. Yes, and as you say, an outline, important, yes. unbelievably important. So why don't we spend then just a few minutes, a uh, condensed version of what we would normally do in a film review, um, and talk about this movie, because we've all watched it uh, in, you know, in association with the planet for today's show. So shall we transition over to the money pennies? <laughs> All right. Remind remind our listeners, uh, Josh, of, of how we do our film reviews here on Bond by Numbers, because it has been a while, but we got to get the engine moving because of what we got coming up this Ooh. season. Yes, we have three categories, acting, 
story and atmosphere. And we each give uh, one, we give a review out of 10 money pennies. Um, of course, obviously where we got that term from in it's terms critical of currency our, our yeah, our critical currency. So we, we, we rate each category out of 10 money pennies and we give a total to kind of give our overall feel of the film we're reviewing. Absolutely. Okay. And now I, I had, so who, who wants to start? Uh, oh, I sorry, was saying Jeff, I had positioned to you guys uh, as a joke. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say we should call it the genies. Obviously that uh, it's not just cause I'm Canadian and that's a reference uh, you know, to awards, but yeah. I was saying just because um, the secretary, uh, Jean Leslie, who was known as Pam, uh, you know, I, she ended up sort of being like the character of Pam due to the uh, the photo and the letters uh, in the film. So I thought, hey, if she's a secretary, you know, and she knew Ian Fleming mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. was pretty and, uh, yeah. and, you know, she was, uh, you know, she worked in counterintelligence and all that kind of stuff. Uh, why don't we call them genies for today? okay yeah so out of 10 there we go so who wants to uh start this out who wants wants i'll be honest my tongue is tired (laughs) so out of 10 genies i gave this i gave the story or the narrative a six out of 10 Mm -hmm. okay slightly above a pass for me it could be a six and a half, maybe, like if I'm being overly generous, but I think six is where I stand on it. All because right. while there's other faucets of the film that I enjoy much more that contributed to my enjoyment of the film, I did have some issues on how the story was presented. Uh, I found that the writers, they couldn't decide if they wanted to make a period spy film or a wartime yeah. melodrama. Like it was it was paced yeah, well. I know what you're but, saying. Mm-hmm. But the emphasis on what I call the yeah, love that, triangle. So I kind of feel like they were setting up this love triangle between uh, Kelly McDonald's Jeannie Leslie, Jean Leslie, and Firth's and Colin Firth's uh, Montague and even McFadden's McFad- character McFad- was in there at the beginning, wasn't he? Like at the at yeah. the beginning, yeah. I felt he there was still like layers of that mm-hmm. attraction okay. towards her okay. that might have made him re- respond the way towards. Montague that he did throughout the film, but then you also have that that uh, other thing on his mind regarding right. his brother. So, anyways, so I was paced well, but the emphasis on what I call the love triangle, I it damaged the momentum of the high stakes situation for me. Like we're told that they better get moving, or Martin will go ripe. Literally, by the mm-hmm. like, we're literally told Martin's we get a bit going, we're running out of time. Martin's going to go ripe soon but only because plot wise, that's what's had to be done to move things forward. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I understand that Madden and co wanted to make an entertainment that acted as both a melodrama and a spy thriller. They wanted to make bank with the audiences of various genres, but I find that this story, like this corpse becomes bloated because of that. <laughs> um, the third act to me really fumbled with the anti Hitler plot monkey yeah. wrench. Uh, even though this is based in reality, as your breakdown gave us, Jeff, I found that um, it seems to come out of nowhere uh, because there's no setup where Gene is twice a yeah. MacGuffin and liability making Godfrey's told you so speech hit home more than it should have. The narration from Fleming was a good idea on paper, I'm sure, but it seems mm-hmm. a little too yeah. on the nose, even though I like Fleming, the writer, being inspired by the operation. 
mm-hmm. all those inserted Bondian moments with Fleming, that really took me out of the picture. Just yeah. yeah. The fan service like, was, I feel the same way. The fan service was distracting. That's, it's a bit that's jarring. Probably, yeah. That's what made it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And Montague and Gene are talking about, or Chomley are talking about verisimilitude. And, and yeah. then the movie they is use that word. not yeah. doing that. Mm-hmm. They use that exact word, ironically, in there. And I just found that kind of funny. Um, so these are the, these are my more salient points, you know, for why the narrative overall didn't work mm-hmm. for me. I'll can and I confess that this might have been a bit of an expectation failure because I was kind of expecting more of like a Paul Greengrass's Bloody Sunday, sort of a docudrama or something like Syriana yeah. or Zero Dark yeah. Thirty in presentation with the people involved just doing their job. Like the love triangle and other dramatic elements inserted into the narrative, it didn't interest me. And uh, to me, it diminished the wartime feeling. I never felt the threat they kept talking about because I was just told about it. I appreciate the humanity that Madden mm-hmm. tried to inject in the proceedings, but I think it robs the film of the required suspense that mm-hmm. I believe the situation demanded. That's Where you get a to good the third act, I found like mm-hmm. the bodies in the water. Yeah, it was beautiful to see him, to see, you know, uh, Glendower get almost a naval funeral, kind of like what Bond had in You Only Live Twice. Uh, and, and, you know, that was, that, that was lovely. I, I appreciated that very much. So, but to me, we kind of glossed over like the big, the big picture, the suspense of, are they going to buy the corpse? You, you know, they're going to do that. At least to see the sequence with like Gomez and the doctor in Huelva, that part kind of moved along, but I felt that part should have been stretched oh. out a bit more. And I wanted to see more of like Ainsworth doing more of his spy stuff than what was given just like in montages, like in the montages, you know, he's, he's either up against the wall, <laughs> listening right next to the office door with the secretary or Which, he's yeah, I don't a, know. a hand yeah. job to the guy on, on the bench. Mm-hmm, so like mm-hmm. a bit of forced, like, forced uh, discomfort there, wasn't it? Yeah. He, yeah exactly like I, I but you gotta remember this is the guy that's brought us shakespeare in love <laughs> like this is the guy who who no like really like the, and i true. think josh your your points are on point Absolutely. like right perfect. right perfect but this this is a purpose and audience thing like the purpose of the film under john madden is to tell this historical story but to cram that love story he's in, gotta have a love he story, wants he is. wants to use the frame yeah, he, he's got to yes. use that love story. Uh, yeah. You know, didn't he also do... No, maybe that wasn't him, but I, didn't he also do those, like, uh, exotic Marigold movies with J- Judy Dench? Like, he... I think yeah, this I is in his wheelhouse. Like, yeah. I like what he's doing. I like the idea of, of operating a little love story within this bigger frame, but ultimately, it comes back to what Ben McIntyre said, you know, like, I think which we talked about earlier, like, you can't get it all in a film. No. And so clearly... No Clearly what he's decided to do is to like this little seed of love and, and see if he can appeal to this audience so that two partners can go to the film, one that lo- wants a bit of love, one that wants a bit of military, and both walk out feeling like, that was pretty cool. I kind of enjoyed that. But I know you and Jeff, and perhaps myself too, to a certain extent, we want more of that verisimilitude. We want more of the military oh, yes. uh, macro, the establishing shots. Give me more maps. Give me more drama. Give me more suspense. Let me see the ticking clock. Yes. The 24 the trade yes, feature. The, yeah, the tradecraft. Like, I get it. I do get it. But I was a little more, more generous. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, w- I was a bit more generous than the six with the story for me because although I was very aware that the film would w- was was trying to sell me a love story, um, I'd like watching these actors wrap their dialogue 
around a narrative enough. I like watching、mm-hmm. them perform on the stage enough that I was like, I wasn't disappointed. I know going into a two hour movie set in the period of World War II within the realms of military history, I know already that it ain't going to be the truth. <laughs> I know it's not going to be the full picture. I know that I'm going to have a、no. filter on my eyes that's going to take away things. Like, you know, it's going at warp speed compared to what time they really had in terms of. You know, pulling out operations and all the life minutes that went into Mincemeat. So I know,、yeah. and I'm forgiving it a little bit. I know John Madden、sure. going, going into the experience. I know he's a bit of a romantic flair for directing. So I know he's going to want to do that. I went for a seven because I felt it was,、okay. it, it was good. I knew I wasn't getting the full military meal. I wasn't getting that truth. <laughs> I wasn't getting all the, the, you know, the features and variables that Jeff went through there for us. But I was okay with it because I don't think. You know, I thought that the little bits he tried to get in there, like John Buchan and the 39 Steps at the beginning, yeah. the,、mm, narr- yeah. the narration. Yeah, like those little things did make a difference. And we know that they have influence in the overall story. Fleming's narration, you know, the little things about M and Godfrey. Like he did touch at the bigger personalities that kind of overrode the operation, but you can only do so、yes. much. My, I'll tell you where I took my marks away from, and this is a personal thing with me, okay, for story. We're told by Churchill in, in, in the film, and obviously, you know, we know outside the film too, that these corkscrew thinkers of, of the 20 committee were so important. I didn't, see them, I didn't see them personified as anything but upstanding, posh, kind of curious little figures. I think there were some real oddballs in there, and I would love for the film to have shown me the, the、like、eccentricities、yeah. of these people. And- yeah, instead of, instead of their beauty and their hard thinking and their collaboration. These guys were, as Jeff has outlined for us, a lot of them were just like, wow, we need to see if they can make something out of what the logicians have yeah, said had is ironed out. Fact, right? <laughs> But, and- of course they did.、Yeah. Of course they like- did. But- Yeah, I would like to have seen more of the oddball、exactly. nature of the actual committee. Yeah, you want to see, you want to see that, the, because、yeah, ultimately, yeah, you want to see the brainchild, you want to see the 20 committee, you want、mm. to see that room, you want to see the smoke. So we saw it a lot, but we didn't,、right. but we didn't、yeah. see the brainstorming like you would expect brainstorming to those type of、yeah. people, those type of individuals. If they keep trying to explain, like the corkscrew mind, the out of box thinkers,、mm-hmm. look what you have to do, look how you have to make this work. It, you know, in a time、That's、where, right, like,、yeah. it's, you know, it's,、uh, you know, the, there's the urgency here. So you didn't see that. Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping over, but, but it's true. And that was, that was another thing.、No, I, I don't have anything else to add to that, to be honest. I just think that's it.、Yeah. But I still went for a seven because、oh, I didn't、it. mind Kelly McDonald and Colin Firth playing a bit of romance. You know, that's okay with me.、Um, but yeah, yeah the, 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 the dude that likes his history was a little let down. <laughs> But I also, I also accept the fact, like Ben McIntyre, <laughs>、yeah. you're, not going to, you're not going to succeed putting history on film. You're just not going to do this, it. No, you're going to create you're not. a sensation. You're, you're going to create an entertainment. I mean, and、yeah. I, I accept that. Oh, yeah. So I went seven. I mean, yeah, as soon as when you hit play and you know, when you're watching, a, if you're, okay, maybe you saw it in the theater because I know that it did have a theatrical release、uh, across the pond. Here it was Netflix. So as soon as you hit play and you see the length of time, <laughs> two hours, you're like, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. okay. <laughs> That's、uh, there's going to be some、mm-hmm, stuff left、mm-hmm. out, which is it happens every time. It's fine,、um, totally. So if with my story, actually, I I went with six、um, as well、uh, with、uh, with Josh there. 
I think it's just because after reading the book and and just seeing the level of tradecraft, spycraft, all the little little bits, the little cogs that made it work, there wasn't enough of that there. Like the story was okay, mm-hmm. and obviously they had to abbreviate it to get it done in two hours. Uh, and again, I I I when it comes to love stories, I'm like, I I don't I feel like does every movie need to have one? Uh, I don't think so. However, I understand why they did it. Um, mm-hmm. But I just... But it did detract from the details detracted. we could especially, have got. It did, absolutely. And the suspense as just... And the, the part when they yeah. they threw in the the butler who was the, you know, the good German opera. Mm. That didn't happen. <laughs> and, and I... <laughs> and, no. And also, they, they totally, almost completely... Well, I don't say almost completely, but they really underplayed the importance of Run Run. And I feel instead of uh, placing that. But at least he was there. Yes, at least he was there. Anyways, but the story, I feel you guys hit it all the nail on the head right there. But there's a lot of things I feel that they could have added um, and in fact, they didn't even mention. Now, unfortunately, I didn't even mention either. But the importance of Garbo, the agent Garbo, who was the most uh, fantastic and double agent of of the entire Second World War, um, and he he played a major part in this operation as well as D Day. Um, and uh, but in relation to the story, again, I know there's only so much you can do, and uh, it was the love story that kind of took me out of it. Um, and I felt that they could have shown it better. There could have been a little more urgency. Like obviously there was urgency and, and it did get like a little bit of nail bitey, you know, when they were waiting to hear if they got the documents, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, did the yeah. invasion, I like did, that. did it work? Like, that, but that, that, that just made me want more though. You know, well, that just made, made me exactly. want more. That's yeah. Nice. John Madden makes, can, he can texture it, it and he can set yeah. it. But so the story, yeah. the story definitely, if I can just mention for all three of us, I'm guessing that's probably the weakest um, of of the the genes, I think, for probably all three of us. I'm gonna guess that. <laughs> That's fair assumption. Fair assumption. My assumption. That's interesting. So uh, both of you, but you know what? I guess that goes to show that both of you guys, when you're watching a film, you got you got that critical hat on a little bit more than I do. And that's not to say that you're less forgiving than I am. But I I think, you know, because your content knowledge in military history and your your own experience in military history is a little greater than my own, I think that follows that I would I would allow a film like that a pass, I would give it a pass, maybe a little a little more than than you guys. I will say, though, just to go back on on my point of view on the story, my issue with the, the storytelling in this movie was I found that it was undecided if it wants to be either a, yeah, an, a, a, a period spy thriller you or a melodrama. I agree. Yeah. So like if it was a melodrama but, all the way yeah. through, I would probably give it a higher mark. If it was a spy movie all yeah, the like way atonement. through in terms of like tone, atonement. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like like atonement, for example. Yeah. I, I guess would be a which use the war as a backdrop and highlighted the melodrama. You know, I think that's a good exactly. Example. Yeah, exactly. But this one was trying to do both. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. Acting. Yeah. So let's okay. go on to the acting. Uh, so the acting uh, was pretty yes. darn good for me. I gave it eight out of 10. Me, yeah. I'm, I'm with you too. Eight out of 10. I was eight and a half. Oh, yeah. Thing I yeah. Did. <laughs> so what I have to say about that is simply, you know, we have thinly sketched characterizations on the surface, but I found the actors transcended the material. 
Uh, Firth is more believable in his ro- is is more belie- is, is believable in his role. Uh, he portrays that inner conflict in a subtle fashion with body language, acting with his eyes. Uh, he did that very well. Uh, he was good. Like Firth was good, but despite some subtleties, I did find that he was on autopilot some of the times. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't see a difference between Colin Firth in the King's Speech or exactly my King point. Man. Yeah, I had the same thing written the down, King- dude. The King's Speech is like the same <laughs> yeah, he- sort of aristocratic, uh, troubled figure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I saw, and, yeah. and and Montague. And Montahu was a lawyer was a lawyer before he was with the naval intelligence. I wanted to see more of the lawyer, yeah. you know. Uh, Argued the argumentative, very, the fierceness. He was the, that yeah, the, yeah, bombastic, yeah. though. He was that like he loud was. and angry, and and he could be pretty rude. Yeah, and they, they did make him flawed, and I really appreciate that. Like first did yeah. a good job; he yeah. was believable. But for me, I found McFadden was the MVP. I you know like I felt he, I he, I believe that he was his character. I found that he nearly disappears into the role. And you mentioned about how he looked uncomfortable in the uniform. Mm-hmm. I think that's just mm-hmm. because the, he, he was portraying the character of Chumley being uncomfortable in the uniform. He, as he said, like, I'm a penguin. I'm an RAF mm-hmm. pilot downed. I have a dead yeah. brother I need to bring back from France. My mom is mom doesn't like yeah. Yeah. My mom really cares about the My dead mom brother. doesn't yeah. as much. <laughs> exactly. Every mannerism, every perceived yeah. nervous tick, he's attracted to Gene. So there's jealousy in his antagonism uh, with Monihu, and McFadden conveys that frustration while burying it in his zeal to get his dead brother back. And, you know, this is not just shown in his scenes with Firth or with McDonald. It's like the scene with Isaac's Godfrey yeah. uh, and his yeah. commitment to see honor done by Glendower Michael by attending the operation on the Seraph. The- uh, all those things uh, Chum, uh, McFadden put into his performance. And I totally believed him of someone of that time, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I was with you. My favorite performance was Jason Isaacs. And I know he had a smaller role. Yeah. I really liked him as Admiral yeah. Godfrey. He he blustered when he had to bluster. He looked fierce when he had to look That's fierce. It wasn't anything dynamic or incredible. Like, I get it. It was very much his wheelhouse casting. Ooh. But I thought he was good he in was. it. And he's su- he's at that age now, I think, where he can play roles like this so, so very well. Not to say he couldn't before, because he's always been an aged-looking look- actor. But I think he's yeah. uh, he's very striking in, in uh, Navy Blue, that's yes. for sure. He's yeah. a good-looking guy. Oh, yeah. And he right. plays yeah. his part... He plays his part really well. I liked him. He was fun to follow. And Isaac's great. He's, he's a chameleon. So good, like he man. does American roles. He. I loved him in Brotherhood. That was a good series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was a really. Yeah, he was really good in that. So Penelope Wilton offers strong emotional yet professional support as Hester Leggett, a sort of the aunt of the operation. She keeps things running smoothly with the operation. She fe- that was verisimilitude to me. She felt like someone I believed you know, has been there for the time that she has. She's like an institution, you know? Yeah, and I read that her glued character. Both, both of these stories together because she was also the spokesperson for the romance. Yeah. She was supposed to be a bit more of a hard ass. ass. Yeah, she was, I said, she was more anti yeah. than she was kind of like that's the only uh, thing I thought, like they, matriarch. They made her a lot more, yeah, exactly. She wasn't yeah. shrewish, to use a negative term, but I, I see where you're going there. Uh, Simon Russell Beale gives, a, gives us a colder, less avuncular Churchill than what we've seen before in mm-hmm. previous depictions. This is Churchill the politician. He's affable but remote at the same time, which I think mm-hmm. was the right move. Uh, Kelly McDonald is solid as well. I felt she had more chops in her to play a consummate professional instead of being a woman stuck in a typical love triangle mm-hmm. and reduced mm-hmm. to a plot device twice yeah. in the movie. Yeah, um, totally. I found she she had great she chemistry with Perth yeah. and McFadden. 
And again, you go to Jason Isaacs. He's wonderfully arrogant and no-nonsense pragmatist. He's a realist. Uh, he is conflicted by his patriotism and his ambition, and Isaac shows it despite the script demanding him to be less subtle about it. And finally, uh, Johnny Flynn, I, he clearly studied Fleming in some fashion because he had his mannerisms nailed, the way he holds a cigarette, the way he holds a drink, pictures I've seen of Fleming, um, and the fact that he has a passing likeness, a likeness to Fleming, uh, that really emphasized his performance for me. Mm -hmm. He was used in such a way, it's, it's a pity that there is, there is a meta element to his yeah. presence in the film, and that results in a loss of that word again, verisimilitude. And again, solid work from Alex Jennings and Mark Gaddis and the rest of the cast as well. Uh, my thought of acting was it was the strongest part of this entire uh, film. Again, it was a great cast. Um, I think they played all the characters very well, and all, all very, pretty true to... The book uh, by by Ben McIntyre. The only person I thought that was not really that close was um, Hester. She seemed a lot more uh, lovey, like more loving. And uh, from what I read, she was a little more of a hard ass, uh, you know, uh, for her role in in the office. Um, I loved McFadden as the character. Uh, and, and the funny thing is he's supposed to be a 25 year old. Obviously he's not, <laughs> uh, that, that makes no here or there. That happens all the time with just changing ages of people. Uh, but uh, I, Isaacs I thought was great as Godfrey. I, I really did also enjoy uh, Johnny Flynn as Fleming, but I thought he seemed to do very well. Uh, and again, yeah, him kind of being like that, almost kind of like the Cheshire cat or something like what, what I mean is sort of just like this little character sort of off in the corner, like, um, almost like, the yeah, yeah, being the grinning, wall, like being taking like, his ideas down yeah, in his I'm notebooks. Like, oh, yeah, okay. That time, kind of yeah. took me out of it a bit, you know, but uh, that's the only thing, like, I mean, I liked him, but I was like, uh, you know, acting wise, he was great. And again, same thing, Kelly McDonald, great, uh, Overall, the, the the casting and the acting was very very good. That again, that's the strong and and I'll be honest. From the reviews that I read, it's the same thing. Everyone thought that the the acting was top notch, and it was. Um, it's just yeah, uh, it was. The, the thing is, is, is trying to make Operation Miss Me into a two hour movie, and then you have to give it a love triangle, which I didn't need. <laughs> it you know, it's yeah. gonna happen. I, I I hear you. Yeah, I know you got to give it a love triangle. That's what you got to do. Um, so the final category is atmosphere and I gave this, this was my highest mark. I gave this nine out of 10. I found the cinematography was near excellent. I, I love the gold and blue tints used in the film's interiors. Uh, it's sort of conveying a natural lighting feel, uh, camera work was solid and zoomed in and out and panned around when appropriate exterior shots showed London and environs as a fortress city you see all the Whitehall buildings towering over the characters like labyrinths of stone. It seems deliberate to me that we don't see the ruined London of the Blitz. Uh, the pubs and clubs are filled with period music and excellent attention to detail in regard to the costuming of the period, almost like little speakeasies that the officers escape to. Other things like the detailed place in Huelva and Mitrel in Madrid uh, or in the Whitehall offices and the basement headquarters for the operation. They looked lived in. They, they, they felt worked in. These were real locales to me. Uh, it looked elegant and austere, which is fitting for a World War II era spy film. And Newman's score, however, was to me the big icing on the cake. I think it elevated the proceedings and it captured a we are caught in the whirlwind of a spy caper. It made the human drama stronger than, than what was on the screen. 
to me, and it served the patriotism and suspense of the of the operation's climax and the film's climax at the end as well. So all those elements to me makes like the style of uh, that they were going for in um, Operation Mincemeat that Madden was going for. It's a deserved nine out of ten That's for fair. me. Uh, okay. I, I went with eight and a half. I I agree with what Josh was saying. The score uh, really helped. I thought every the way it was filmed, the lighting, all that kind of stuff. I really felt all the all the locations, all the locales were very well done, well filmed, felt real, felt like exactly how they were trying to portray it. So I like that. Um, it really did sort of bring you in uh, to the film. You felt like you were in all those locations. You felt hot and sticky and stinky when you're in the, you know, with the autopsy there, uh, the coldness of the, mm-hmm. of the, um, the coroner and the pathologist in London, uh, the smokiness in the room 13, uh, all that kind of stuff. I thought the atmosphere was very well done and the coldness, you know, just of, and the uneasiness of London at night, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I thought, I thought that was well done. So that's why. Yeah. So I give it eight and a half. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is, this is where I think we deviate, guys. We di- uh, we find okay. a difference here. I went for a six for my atmosphere. Yes. This was uh, my lowest mark in the film, uh, my category scoring anyway. I, I felt that the yellow filtering and all the lighting and the blue, the cool, I felt all that was predictable. I'd seen it before in all sorts of film period films. The smoky bar, like I didn't see anything new in terms of style here. The editing was nothing new either for me. Now, that's not me saying I didn't like no. it. You know, I, I mean, London's a beautiful city. It's got those stone facades. It's got that towering sort of height that you can use to your advantage if you're trying to minimize, you know, the, the, the single human figure and experience. All of that stuff stylistically works. But I found the tones were predictable. They were sepiaed for what you, want, what you would expect. And I disagree wholeheartedly with the score here. I found the score derivative of what he had written in Skyfall. I wasn't interested in that sort of faux, suspenseful sort. I mean, some of the cues are beat for beat what you heard before. Um, and that doesn't mean they're not good, but I just felt like it's a bit of rehash. rehash. Thomas Newman yeah. is a far, far more talented composer, I think, than to give us a score he's already done for what he did with The Road to Perdition, what he's done with Jives and Skyfall. And here we've got the same sort of atmosphere going again. I didn't think there were very many period features to this score. I felt it was kind of out of whack, actually. With I would have liked more orchestra than synthesizer. I would have liked more, um, more real instrumentation here in my musical experience but these are nitpicky points it's still a passing mark because it was uh, it was an intelligence picture and it had the feeling of intelligence but i just didn't think it was novel i thought it was very serviceable so for that reason i'd go six i didn't think they 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 pushed the boat out with style um so i I went for a six so yeah so the atmosphere and the score and everything combined in that is kind of your version of our our historical expectations. Yeah, sure. In a way, yeah, if you that, think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure thing. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I, I'm happy to go with that. But look, I think we're all saying the same thing. It's a good film, but it, it falls short of doing what a, a lot of historical films try to do, I suppose, where you try to take such an incredible story with so many different tentacles and, and variables and try to make it work. Uh, but I don't, I don't see it as a failure because John Madden didn't ultimately no, try to do that. And you know, no, yeah. So yeah, it would, it would service a, min, a mini series like Chernobyl mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a feature ah, yeah. film. I think excellent. to get Operation also, excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bentley Purchase was the guy. He was the the lead. Was it the scientist or technician at Chernobyl? He was a he was in Chernobyl. Of, yeah, yeah. He's a piece of shit. Whatever it, uh, I forget his name was. Yep. Yeah. Uh, ironically enough, <laughs> you're saying that. 
Nice one. That, that, that's a good pickup. <laughs> and Simon Russell Beale was uh, Berea right. in yeah, yeah, uh, The yeah, Death of right. Stalin. No, and Isaacs was yeah, Dukov. That's right. So, <laughs> right. It, it all comes back. <laughs> this was a lot of fun today. Uh, Jeff, you, you you really did a great job getting all those historical points. Oh. Yeah, so Jeff Jeff is at a, uh, a what's that? Uh, eight eight and a half, eight and a half. 17. Jeff's at a 23 overall. Josh, you're at a 23 overall. And I'm at a, and I'm at a 21 overall for that film. So, okay. yeah. So, so we, we, we like the movie. We like yeah, it. It's we enjoyable. Did. If you want to see a good World War II era spy film, you know, something that distracts you on Netflix for for an evening, that's, you know, that's also educational in its own way. Uh, check it out. It's, uh, it's, it's worth a look. But look. do read up on, on the operation. <laughs> read the book. Yeah, read the book. Um, and coming up on Bond by Numbers, uh, we're going to use this little condensed film review to move into our seasonal three non-bonds which is always a good time here on the show and uh, we'll, we'll leak a little bit more about that on the socials but uh, when we return here on Bomb by Numbers we'll have a new review for you and uh, looking forward to that guys but take care for now everyone thanks for listening and uh, for checking out our show and we'll, we'll catch you on the socials before our next episode drops ciao, ciao.